0: Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. On February 4th, 2022, the 24th Winter Olympic Games will be opened in Beijing. The city will be the first to host both Winter and Summer Olympic Games. The lead-up to the Games has been mired by the decision of several liberal democracies to not send high-level dignitaries to the Games in protest over human rights violations in Xinjiang. In addition, the Games are being held under the specter of the ongoing global pandemic. With a strict separation of athletes from the general public, the organizers aim to prevent any spillover of infections carried in from outside the country. My name is Johannes Heleyon, and to talk about the Winter Olympics 2022 in Beijing, I'm joined by Valerie Tan. Analyst at Merix, with a focus on Chinese elites and societal debates, among other topics. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie.
1: Hi, Johannes. Thank you for having me.
0: A pleasure. As I said above, the Winter Olympics in Beijing will be the second time that the city hosts uh, Olympic Games. Um, The first time was in 2008. What are the differences and maybe similarities between these two Games in 2008 and 2022?
1: I think the China of 2008 is quite different from the China of 2022. Within just a period of 14 years, China has undergone profound changes across the board. And the two games provide good case studies for comparison. Back in 2008, the China hosting the Summer Games was framed as a country opening up to the world. Within China, citizens were strongly encouraged by the state to learn English before the Olympics in order to welcome the foreign delegates and connect with the global community. Today, English is now seen as an extra burden on school children. English exams were banned last year in Shanghai. Foreign textbooks, especially on sensitive subjects like journalism or politics, are barred from use in schools and universities. So from that, the key difference is is China seems to be turning inwards compared to China of 2008. And then you have the economic. China was called market of the future in 2008. Today, it's now viewed as a formidable competitor. At the same time, China's geopolitical ambitions have also grown in tandem and are challenging the U.S.-led international liberal order. So one thing that stayed consistent between 08 and 22 is the ruling regime. But the top leadership has also changed. And that is also fundamental to understanding the differences between the two games. Back in 2008, if you remember, there was collective leadership in the CCP and Xi Jinping was vice president. He was also leading the organizing committee for the Beijing Olympics. Today, he is China's president and is very likely to take on the third term of the party leadership this year after abolishing the party framework for succession. So in a sense, we can say both the Olympics are part of Xi's legacy and a true reflection of China's expansion, as well as its ambition to be a leading global superpower in the coming decades.
0: You just talked about Xi being, using the Winter Olympic Games to foment his legacy in a way. Um, what is the importance of these Winter Olympic Games for the China's government uh, more broadly maybe?
1: I think for Beijing, Beijing, essentially hosting the Winter Olympics is about prestige. And that's the prestige that Beijing craves as a global superpower, the Winter Games has always been associated with like distinction, prestige, wealth, um, because it is the world's biggest event for winter sports, and a majority of countries and athletes uh, who are you know do well in these winter sports. Or who are hosts are usually located or are from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, So, for China, being the third East Asian country after Japan and South Korea to ever host the Winter Olympics means that it has sort of taken a step into entering that exclusive club. So, if you see it from that way, the Winter Olympics provides China the opportunity to project that it's a prosperous and confident country, as Xi Jinping has proclaimed. It also gives China the opportunity to draw global attention to its achievements and divert the focus away from human rights issues and other negative narratives about the ruling regime.
0: The human rights issues uh, you just mentioned played uh, a role in leading up to the Games as several liberal democracies decided not to send high level dignitaries uh, to the Games. Um, How was this seen in in Beijing?
1: So The diplomatic boycotts are essentially some countries really taking a political stand to protest against China's oppression of the ethnic minorities, particularly in Xinjiang. So on some levels, it can be argued that it's largely symbolic because it doesn't really lead to a change in China's behavior. One can also argue that this diplomatic boycott means that leaders lose the opportunity, a valuable opportunity, to really travel to China and hold face-to-face meetings to establish some form of diplomatic dialogue with Chinese leaders. For Beijing, however, it has managed to turn the boycott around and reframe it as a US-led anti-China campaign to curb its rise as a geopolitical issue. On the other hand, we also see quite a number of developing countries, particularly those from Africa who might not even have athletes at the Winter Olympics. They've come out in full support of Beijing. So now this issue has become kind of like a division between the global south and the global north, the developing and the developed nations. Nevertheless, I would argue that the physical absence of important political leaders from major economies at such a prestigious sporting event still puts out a very crucial political message sent to China to say that what it has done to the Uyghur, to the Kazakh, to the Hui minorities in Xinjiang is not going to be tolerated. It is about continuing to put pressure on China and raising awareness that such crimes against humanity in Xinjiang will not be ignored. It is also really about not giving free reign to Beijing to fully use the Winter Olympics for its own propaganda purposes. So I would say that a diplomatic boycott is not completely meaningless in that sense.
0: The Games are also happening under the specter of a global pandemic, the corona pandemic, that is still ongoing. Um, Beijing has taken the steps to separate athletes uh, from all over the world from the general public, having something like a closed loop, an Olympic bubble, Uh, where these people are tested every day. How does the pandemic also figure into the games?
1: I think the pandemic has given China the grounds and the justification to install what you just described as and what has been called the most stringent regulations ever governing the health and movement of athletes and team officials at the Olympics. So, like you said, the mandatory daily testing for COVID-19 locked up in a closed loop where they can only travel between hotels and sporting events using authorized vehicles. And there have been reports of how, like, even before they travel, some athletes self-isolate for 14 days before they arrive in Beijing to kind of minimize the risk of them being tested positive because if they do test positive they will be put into quarantine and some athletes have been reportedly saying that you know such stringent rules have given them a lot of anxiety and stress so on the one hand we can understand and view these strict measures um, as necessary done in the name of health and safety to curb outbreaks of a very infectious virus on the other hand, the pandemic has really given Beijing the perfect justification to assert its authoritarian control over foreign delegates at a major global event.
0: And this control also extends to media personnel and, and, and similar personnel as well. Also, in, in the lead up to the game, there was uh, an app developed marketed to international audiences to, to follow the games. But there were also concerns ab- about data security in this app. Could you say something about that as well?
1: Yeah, so for the Winter Olympics, there is this app called My2022, which has been developed by a China state-owned company. And under the playbook for athletes and team officials who are taking part in the Winter Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, has mandated that this app has to be downloaded by team officials and athletes. 14 days before they travel. It is used for them to update their vaccination record. It is used to update their test results, their COVID test results, and also used to monitor their health and if they were, you know, if they have symptoms or whatever, they are supposed to use the, the app to report it. To the uh, organizing committee. At the same time, it's also an app to like you know for people to use to find out what the upcoming events, where the transport you can take, where the different venues, the locations, maps, and things like that. So it's quite useful for participants in a sense. And a research institute in Canada, the Citizen Lab, has uncovered like you know cybersecurity flaws. Uh, one is the encryption flaws, which means that people can intercept the exchange of information between the app. Um, and the organizing committee and then the other thing is they found like built-in censorship where over 2,400 words were considered banned. There's a chat function in the app if you key in certain politically sensitive words it will be censored. So there are lots of things and flaws found in the app but I would say that these flaws are not uncommon. They are what I would call typical Chinese characteristics that you would find in apps developed for the Chinese domestic market. So these Force are not new. But what's interesting is, or what is perhaps concerning, is that IOC has allowed this app to be used for at an international event, indirectly allowing China or the regime to assert its techno authoritarianism on a global event and on foreign delegates. Kind of in a way, China pushing its norms with regard to how technology is used or how technology should be used at an event in the name of curbing outbreaks, which is a good thing. But on the other end, it's like, you worry about um, how your own privacy, how information is being uh, exchanged. Um, So that's what I think that is concerning in the sense because IOC has come forward to say that they did check on the app and they found no cyber vulnerabilities. But then again, you have some a third party coming in to say, well, there are flaws. So why weren't these taken into account? So I think there's a lot to be said about the responsibility of the IOC, but at the same time, because the host is Beijing. So it shows that Beijing wants to host the games, but on its own terms.
0: It's very interesting. Thank you for that insight. We talked about the impact on, on international participants, athletes, media before, but let's turn into how, how the Games impact Chinese citizens.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it won't be surprising to me to see like Chinese citizens having a sense of national pride, seeing their capital city, Beijing, to become the world's first to host both the Summer and the Winter Games. But I also see a deep disconnect between the aspirations of the political elites in China and on the ground, the demands and the interests of the citizens. The games are held in the middle of China's most important holiday in the Chinese calendar, the Spring Festival, where millions travel cross country uh, to return to their hometowns and reunite with their families once every year. And for the second year in a row, the government has called on citizens to sacrifice their family reunions and stay where they are during the holidays in order to cope the outbreaks Uh, and local transmissions of COVID. For those in Beijing, that's an extra layer uh, because the local government there has called residents to stay at home, to avoid driving, to work from home if they have to, so as to minimize traffic congestion and air pollution during the games. So again, as with its COVID approach, Beijing is asking its citizens to sacrifice for the greater good. I mean, can you imagine how citizens in Munich would feel or in San Moritz would feel if they are told they're not allowed to visit their families during Christmas, which is also a very important holiday for the sake of the Winter Olympics? I think people would be very angry. So the same can be said for the Chinese citizens. And even in China's very tightly controlled internet space, people have expressed anger and frustration at the strict travel restrictions imposed on citizens during this very important festival. So at the very top, you see this, You see the Chinese leadership, you know, they want to portray this image of prosperity and confidence at the Winter Olympics. At the bottom, there are pockets of frustration and anger coming from citizens who are losing patience with the strict COVID travel restrictions and being forced to sacrifice very important family time in the name of national pride.
0: Sports officials claim that China is a huge market for for winter sports. Um, Traditionally, I would say China has not been known as a winter sport destination. Um, Is that changing with the Winter Olympics or or will the interest in winter sports die out when when the games are over?
1: I think um, in the national, in the Chinese propaganda, they have been uh, dangling this word about how, you know, Since they won the bid to host the Winter Olympics, 300 million Chinese citizens have now joined to be participants of winter sports. That sounds like a big number, and it's a very good number to use if you are somebody who is promoting ski resorts to build ski resorts to investors. Um, I think the idea about hosting the Winter Games to introduce more Chinese to winter sports is part of the regime's propaganda push to justify why they are spending billions to build these massive facilities and host the Winter Olympics. Again, I really see a disconnect between the political elites and the Chinese citizens. Because on the ground level, even though 300 million is a big number, winter sports is still not something that is, well, it is desirable and aspirational. And from time to time, you'll see reports of how young Chinese who are living in Beijing would, you know, go on a short trip over the weekend, drive to the outskirts of Beijing to the ski resort or snowboard. But these are just pockets. They're not like um, masses of numbers. Because winter sports is still a very expensive, uh, not easily accessible kind of activity for the average Chinese citizen. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, in order to be involved in winter sports, there is that huge first investment to be able to, afford somebody to to teach you, to be able to buy those equipment, your snow boots, your snowboards, they cost quite a bit, and it's not exactly affordable for the average Chinese citizen. And you also need to be able to afford that transportation to go to that kind of a snow uh, venue, a snow sports venue. And during summer, there are indoor sports venue. Again, it, it, it's, it requires a certain amount of wealth. And on top of that, not just the initial investments, there's also the health insurance um, because of a lack of social safety net. That is, if you are seriously injured, in, it, you, you, you need to be able to afford hospitalisation bills to be able to treat that injury. And we all know winter sports can be, Quite injuries from winter sports can be quite serious. So for the average Chinese citizen, it, it's too much of a big risk to get involved in. So I think that it, there will be pockets of Chinese, within the Chinese population, who see this as something aspirational and they can do over the weekend. But on a mass scale, I don't think that is likely to see a big pickup at any time soon. Um, so you would see this debate going on as well Um, after the the summer olympics where you know the stadiums built for the summer olympics they they caught they were caught white elephants nobody used them Um, and you would see the same kind of debate come up during the winter olympics as well these these really very expensive slopes that they built uh, in Zhangjiakou and Yanqing you know the areas where they're hosting the winter olympics they will be abandoned after a while because these slopes are basically for athletes, for, you know, people who are professional sports, winter sports athletes. So it would not be opened to the average Chinese. So, yeah, you would see them, you will see more white elephants. And that will be uh, one of the issues that is likely to come up after the Winter Olympics for China.
0: Tying it back to the beginning of our conversation. Uh, You said that this uh, Olympic Games are also about Xi Jinping's legacy and and protecting China's soft power globally. Once these games are over, what is next in this regard? What do you think?
1: I think 2022 has been earmarked as a very important year for the Party and for Xi Jinping. Particularly, he is vying for a third term as the Party's leader, and this is also the first year after. The party has celebrated its centenary so for the party this is like the year that they embark on the next stage uh, which is the xi jinping era so the winter olympics is kind of another box for the regime to tick uh, to say that we have achieved that and another achievement to put in the bag to say for, for xi jinping to tick to the 20th party congress in autumn to say look, I've done a lot for the country and I deserve to be the leader of the party for the next five years. So I think in that sense, that's what it means politically for the party and for Xi Jinping.
0: Thank you very much for your time and your insight, Valerie.
1: Thank you, Johannes. It was good talking to you.
0: You have been listening to Merix Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merics.org.